So welcome back to the Story of Software podcast. Today, we're talking to Hugh O'Brien, who's the CTO at Thrive Global. Hugh's held a variety of technical and leadership roles over the course of his career. Thrive Global is a very interesting company, and we're going to learn a little bit about what they're doing. And we're going to talk about employee well-being as a competitive advantage. So Hugh, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Thank you so much for having me. All good today. Fantastic. Maybe to begin with, you could tell us a little bit about yourself and what led you to where you are today career-wise. Absolutely. So throw back the clock to mid-90s, got my first computer, Pentium 1. Uh, wasn't seen for again for about 10 years. Did the only sensible thing and studied computer engineering in Limerick. And then after, decided to go on and do a, a master's in the field of wireless signal compatibility. Got very deep into that and became, to date, as I believe, the only living person who knows why wireless signals run at 2.4 gigahertz, because I never published that result. Um, and from there, moved on to Dublin from Limerick, uh, took a few roles in smaller software startups, then kind of hit the, the main startup stride when I joined a company called Jet that just opened its first Irish office. That was employee number six, I think. Um, and then very soon after I joined, they were actually acquired by Walmart, which basically gave us the funding of the world's largest Fortune 1 company. So in that role, I was over infrastructure, kind of DevOps experience for our messaging system. Later, the Walmart experience was driven by these systems. So that gave me a pretty good fire into uh, extremely high volume, high value systems. Um, I went from there to, to Zendesk, where I worked in the enterprise data department, which was a great introduction to a bunch of big data, uh, ETL processes, really kind of system correctness. And then from then on to Thrive, almost uh, two years ago now, right at the start of the pandemic. And at Thrive came in initially to do a lot of their infrastructure work and then rose the ranks to become the CTO. So we're over developer experience, the platform system we're building, uh, opened up a Dublin office six months ago. Now. We're up to 20-something people in Dublin. So opening an office is a lot of fun. Um, we had to do a lot of paperwork, but it's been able to allow us to open up to the Irish engineering market. And majority of engineers now are in Ireland. Very cool. And could you tell us a little bit about Thrive Global and what the company does? Mm -hmm. So it was founded about five years ago by former newspaper person, Ariana Huffington. And the basic gist of it was that she had recognized there was this huge market need to actually treat wellness and well-being, not as a lovey-dovey, goopy, you know, magic crystal rock sort of approach, but actually something meaningful to employees. Um, and to invest in that through whatever means made sense was pretty um, important to her. And early customers are large Fortune 20, Fortune 50 companies. The gist of Thrive's approach is, uh, and I can speak a little freely in terms of my interpretation of it, is that we have so many systems right now in our work lives that are designed to engage. We've taken all of the engagement and the growth hacking tricks like social media, notifications, push notifications, feeding you know, content so you've got to click through, constant sense of fear of missing out, taken all of these negative anti-patterns and we've kind of baked them into our work tools in a crazy way. There's a reason your instant messenger always pops up a notification on screen because it's a growth hacking thing. And the observation is simply that if you've got so much pressure to be disrupted or, or interrupted at work or have your day controlled by these software systems that are less interested in your well-being and productivity than they are in their own engagement numbers, and surely there's room for some things to go the other direction to encourage peace, quiet, and calm, and focus, um, focusing on either your own health, your own stress levels, your own sense of connection to your own body. How many of us can get lost in some three or four hours of code only to wake up and have a sore neck next day? That's the sort of stuff that I think makes sense for software to help us with. Could we talk a little bit about why companies might want to get involved in, in terms of their employees' well-being? So I'm sure there are kind of a range of reasons and motivations. Would you be able to speak about some of those? Sure. I mean, the number one selling point for Thrive is it's a retention system. So people are happy will stay longer. That's the obvious business angle. 
but more interestingly than retention, um, it's actual well-being, whether someone is doing a good job or whether they are happy in their job. We've all worked in places where someone is obviously unhappy and you can really bring a team down. So you can end up losing weeks, months of productivity because someone on a team is really not feeling it. And I can tell you that there's been several cases in my career where someone was like that and occasionally it was me. And when they left, the team was better off. And if you can help people either detect that or, or see it within themselves, if you can help people correct either on their side or more critically on the company side, the company culture can be more humane then you actually reduce the number of people who experience that and by proxy, increase the general sense of teamwork, happiness, satisfaction at work, leading to overall more productive outputs from the company. In really well-engaged teams, people look forward to this. They hang out after hours. They collaborate on the weekends. I'm not saying we should do all that, but the idea of a collaborative, engaged, friendly team producing good work, I think is fairly self-evident. Hugh, could we talk a little bit at a more granular level around what are the kind of business challenges Thrive is solving for its customers and how it utilizes technology to solve those challenges? Mm -hmm. The very, very high level is to provide our customers, employees, the tools, techniques, and critically, the permission and encouragement from companies themselves to follow through on these techniques. And it's a couple of examples. Um, If you are in a series of back-to-back meetings, If you're not taking a couple of breaks, even a minute or two in between, then you're likely to build up a lot of tension. Could be tension in your neck, your shoulders, your bad posture. So one of the very simple things we do is we produce these videos or resets. um, And they are just 90 second kind of zone outs where you get to focus on maybe the stress in your shoulders or encourage peace, calm and focus. Literally psychologically proven from Stafford studies that this sort of intervention reduces stress. So a very simple thing like that is actually, hey, take two minutes in between meetings, like breathe, basically, has been shown to be enormously effective. It kind of makes sense in retrospect, but to us, it wasn't the direction we were going in, is how effective it is for people who are on the phone a lot, like in a call center or similar customer support role, that moment of disconnect has proven enormously effective. So that's one example. Um, I can give more direct ones, um, such as the entire basis of Thrive is around something called a microstep. Again, very simple, but a microstep is essentially a form of uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. Uh, a CBT or a microstep essentially says that you commit to do some small action. You agree is the right thing to do, and you commit to do it regularly. And as you do it more often, it becomes easier to do, uh, psychologically, at least. And because you've committed to doing it, you're happy to do it. And all we do at Thrive is we present you some well-trusted suggestions. So as an example, let's say you have issues with sleep. One of the suggestions we will make is to put your smartphone outside your bedroom before you go to bed. Because I don't know about you, but pretty much everyone I know will play with their smartphone in bed. It's crazy. Like Anyway, the microstep is to put the phone outside the room, and it will prompt you to do so at whatever time you set. Maybe it's when you brush your teeth or something. And you check in. You say, yes, I did it. Now, obviously, you do it on the phone, which is kind of ironic. But by checking in, then, you put a mark on your calendar. You did it this day. And just keeping that going is very psychologically important. So simple tricks like that enable our users to basically better their own digital lives and make these small changes over time that enable bigger results. But we have dozens to do with exercise, healthy eating, financial choices, you name it. Um, I'd love to get into some of the financial choices. That sounds quite interesting. So there's, uh, depending on our, our customers, some of them will have focus on kind of office-bound workers, but a huge amount of our customers' focus is on some of their frontline workers. Retail workers are, are similar who often have financial troubles And there's many good reasons for this. For instance, if you are tempted to spend six, seven euro on lunch during the day, but 
in fact, you know, it would be simpler, uh, cleaner, more cost-effective to prepare the lunch before you go to bed. And that's something we can prompt you to do and encourage you to do and show you, for instance, the benefit of doing so over time, compounding value, not spending those 10 euros a day. And this sounds an awful lot like life advice. I'm very cautious about suggesting that's not. It's more taking an honest look at what your goals are, realizing that sometimes the thing you need to do is quite simple, but realizing that just because it's simple doesn't mean it's easy to do. And we're trying to help you do the simple thing in a way that fits the human psychology. There must be really interesting internal debates you have at Thrive, because there must be a kind of a line that you consider when it comes to when you've gone beyond kind of giving advice and you're getting a bit overly involved in people's private affairs. Like product perspective, I can imagine there must be quite vigorous debate internally. Of, eh, is this somewhere where we should be kind of getting involved with our customers, employees? And is, is that the case or am I imagining something uh, inaccurately here? Um, I imagine we'll develop into that. But as I said, what we're advocating is advice your mother would give you. Right? It's nothing crazy. So the degree of debate is, is, is usually limited. We're not making personal choices for people. One of the more interesting ones was it made some assumptions that the person involved was a woman and was a mother. Um, so the suggestion was to connect with your, your mom tribe, um, use that as a support group and make sure that you're getting the connection and the emotional support during your early motherhood stage which of course is wholly inaccurate or inappropriate for anyone not in that position. So that certainly was removed. Um, by and large, there is a segment of users that we're focusing on, and those are, uh, well, there's two segments, the retail workers and then the office workers. And by and large, because of our customers tend to be US multinationals, although increasingly some EU-based ones. So the segmentation of the users tends to be relatively simple into those two categories. And as a result, the microsets suggestions are relatively mundane. But I will emphasize again, the simplicity of these things is actually the benefit. If it's complicated, people don't tend to do it. You, you've given us very interesting business context about all of this. What are the technology challenges and how are you going about addressing those? Um, Thrive is in many ways simple, but it's simple, not easy in um, the famous for Chicky uh, sense. So that while we try and keep things straightforward, in doing so, we have to either say no to a lot of systems or our approaches or try and find this core simplicity to our product that allows us to expand. So Thrive has been in a number of various stages of growth, essentially grown in different directions. And it's only recently that we decided that we know what the right one to invest in is and thrown all of our weight behind that. So from a business perspective, you want to enable the engineering group to explore the space in a kind of cost-effective way. So if you can't try 10 things cheaply and find the one or two that work, then you're essentially betting that your first try is going to be perfect. And that's a hard bet to make. So one of the challenges of Thrive has been enabling both cheap experimentation and prototyping, but also enabling the path to a full-on enterprise-grade solution. That's great. And Hugh, speaking about productivity in general, you've been leading engineering teams for a while now. What do you do to get the most out of developers that you lead? There's so much. The easiest thing to start with, by far, is to give them whatever laptop they want, right? You would be amazed by how many companies get very picky about, you've got to have this thing, and this version is going to have this security control, and so on. I've come from those companies, right? So for Thrive's case, making developers happy is enormously valuable. So you want the fancy new Macs? Sure, you get them. You want to use the fancy JetBrains IDE? Well, we standardize on the JetBrains IDEs because we knew they were fantastic. That's the easy bit. Telling them what they can't have is the hard bit. And what we've got great value out of about a year ago now is moving to standardize on one language for back end, another language for front end, and stick with that. 
And by having that rigidity, what we've allowed is for developers to move in between teams because we don't necessarily care what team they're on as long as they are happy and are producing good value. So our, our language in that case is obviously very important to choose. Um, people suggesting C++, uh, Rust, but our decision ultimately was Kotlin as a fairly modern language system that's been enormously successful. And the second thing I will talk about in terms of getting the engineering output up is essentially to, to front load a lot of the complexity. Everyone tends to want to start and get something going and then address it later on. And that is valuable, but there is a trade-off. And if you can trade off well, you're in a good space. Ultimately, the very, very high organizing principle that I take is there's so much complexity in our systems that if we're not encoding that complexity in the tool in a way that allows us to work with that and shows us where we've made a mistake, then we end up in the mud. So I think for engineering culture, we need to let the tools help us with the complexity. And it means checks, it means static types, it means schemas, it means standard, standard, standards. Hugh, I've actually got a follow-up question to what you said. Um, what's your opinion on the requirement to have some background in something like Kotlin? So if you're going to hire a senior engineer and they're coming from .NET Core, Node.js, are you comfortable hiring them in as a senior engineer into your team, working with Kotlin? And what's your expectation of a reasonable ramp-up time to become proficient with a new language? Without question, we don't require you to have Kotlin. We have a job spec. They took my job spec down because I was too snarky. But um, essentially, it said that if you program any sort of ALGOL 68 derivative at any point in your life, which is basically every language except ML, um, then come on board. Um, any Java, any C Sharp, any of those standard approaches work just fine. Uh, we have a couple of books for Kotlin that we train people on. We have Kotlin meetings every week and discusses various aspects. I mean, you have to assume that even, even if someone was a Kotlin expert and they walked in the door, you're going to have to train them on your systems, your style of doing things, your business needs, your customers' needs, the way the teams work. Like there's so much training for an engineer on joining a company. To focus on the language is not reductive. Like any reasonable engineer will pick up any reasonable programming language in a reasonable amount of time. And to answer your question, I would expect that we as a company have failed in some way if they're not shipping reasonable code in six weeks. Very interesting. You, how do you think, moving away from the tech side of things and taking a more general view, how do you think the pandemic has changed the whole world of business? Um, I think the answer to that question depends entirely, um, and it's been my observation that anyone who has property and speaking from a Dublin sense, if you're within the M50, you are very much in favor of people needing to go back to the office because in all likelihood, you have a small property. And on the flip side, if you're living in a nice bit of property for money you spend, you are very much in favor of working from home. And that's what we've seen in a lot of our, our employees here. We have a beautiful office on Mount Street Upper and it's only used maybe 50% of the time. We're very flexible in this approach, again, but to, to go back to your question, I think remote work is here to stay. I think remote work even itself is kind of an oxymoron. It's just work. We're past the time where we delineate between remote and in-person. It's work one way or another. Um, I think if I were starting a company tomorrow, I would not set up an office. I would be remote only. I think, however, what a lot of companies miss, and I think based on how difficult it is to change company culture, I don't know that they'll ever get around to it is setting themselves up to work well with remote by default. And that means fully committing to asynchronous communication. It means a focus on writing. It means having meetings in the right sense. It means understanding time zones. It means setting up your teams such that they can make autonomous decisions in their time zone without waiting for Australia to online, you know, 
Um, I view it essentially, it's a version of the CAP theorem. Apply to teams, you can't have team in five different time zones synchronize and be in lockstep without spending so much time waiting on consistency and latency. I think if companies aren't leaning into the individuals, um, the best engineers, best product people, best designers, they're going to go and they're going to be showering options that they've never seen before. And if you want to keep those people, we need to give them exactly what they want. And if that means remote work, that's what they're going to get. Um, the other thing that I think is amazing is the proliferation of broadband across the world means that it's now possible to work anywhere. It really is. So if you put those two things together, I think what we're going to see is that the nature of real estate is going to change and the cities are not going to have the same financial draw that they used to. Because if you view the city as the place you go to get a job, you know, the watering hole, if you will, um, now everywhere is a watering hole. So again, if I was starting another company, we'd be all remote and we'd all probably live somewhere cheap and sunny and there would be no need to engage with the fairly difficult real estate market. Yeah, I think that's true. I'm actually surprised that it hasn't happened faster like the onset of the pandemic, that this is going to be brutal for um, those holding, you know, large amounts of office space in those big cities. And it hasn't come to pass yet, but maybe they're just kicking that can down the road a little bit and there's going to be, you know, significant pain on the way. And maybe we just haven't fully integrated or implemented this new world yet. And, and uh, it'll be interesting to see how that whole market is impacted over next year. I firmly believe that the need to cram everyone into tiny office buildings and we're going to realize how silly those are. And once there's an option, we're going to take an option. And it would be crazy to suggest otherwise. Once people get whatever life goals, they're going to opt out of that and go live on a ranch somewhere. And they're going to make the same money they would make. In, and they're the people you want. You're going to do whatever it takes to get them. Uh, Hugh, I have one last question for you. Would you be able to share recommendations for any books, podcasts, or other sources of knowledge or learning that have helped you in your career? There's so many, actually. Uh, I like to look at the earlier books. I think what I, anytime someone says, oh, music wasn't like this in the old days, it's because they're hearing all noise of the modern album chart or something. And they're only remembering the best songs from the 70s or 80s. So um, the books that have stood the test of time in terms of computing, I think, are the ones to look at. I think there's a trend right now, and it makes sense, but it's worrying all the same, to just focus on the immediate kind of existential reality of computing. I mean, it's, you know, learn node in 24 hours or how to get your first website up or something. And the idea that someone might look into what a parser is or why a parser is meaningful or how networking works or any of these fundamental tenets of computing is a little bit unusual. It's even unusual by and large to understand your programming language at a level of depth. So I'm very much in favor of getting the fundamentals. And what I've seen personally is people who who have a good understanding of the fundamentals can adapt to changing computing environments very quickly because they're building on a framework that is scientifically backed and, and, and has uh, 30, 40 years of engineering culture behind it. A great example is the recent rise in popularity of server-side rendering front-end code. Um, it took me a, a little while to understand that until I realized that from my perspective, it was the same thing as PHP back in the day. Um, so anything based on fundamentals is good. Some of the earlier books around the Unix design system are, there's a great book, it's called Introduction to Computer Science by Alan Perlis, a famous computer scientist. I will say the one takeaway, and there's an amazing video by now Turing Award winner, Dr. Alan Kay, and it's available on YouTube, demonstration at Apple Computing. And the video is called Doing with Images Makes Symbols, but he spends about 45 minutes going through a brief history of computing and shows you essentially why everything that was new in the 80s was actually already 20 years old and shows you stuff in that video that you thought was new this year was actually 50 years old, including, for instance, types and objects demoed in 1967. So watch that video. It's great. 
Awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, Hugh, it's been great talking to you today. Thank you so much for your time. No, thank you so much for having me. Talk to you again soon. The production by Adnan Tuchar with support from Albina Cresteva and Evan Sheehan and music by Robert Cooney. We'll catch you next time on the Story of Software podcast.